Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome back to the Women's Podcast. I'm Roisin Ingle. Today we're going to be talking to a really impressive young woman from Ennis Diamond County, Clare, called Amy Foley. And I know many of you will have seen her on the news recently as she reacted to the fact that her father's five-year sentence for raping and sexually assaulting her between the age of 12 and 18 had been almost doubled. It'll never be enough for me or my family but not only is this a form and a sliver of justice this is a learning curve for our country because sexual crimes and offences, the sentencing for this in Ireland can be absolutely appalling. But today it has proven to work in my favour. To me, this sentence, although greater and greatly appreciated, it will never be enough. But this is going to be the basis, the beginning and the start and new standard going forward. Accountability must be taken not only by my father for what he did to me, but by this country and by the system to know that although rectified, more can be done and I will not stop until more is done about it. That was Amy Foley there and I'll be bringing you our conversation in a moment. But before I do, I want to talk a little about the fact that this episode will be very challenging for some people. It was even challenging for us working on the podcast and I want to make sure that that is really clear before we begin. Certainly you won't want to listen to it with younger people in the room and obviously you can be the judge of that. And if you've suffered yourself from sexual assault or abuse or if these subjects are hard for any reason, then we're going to suggest that you maybe skip this episode. Amy talks in quite a lot of detail in some parts about the child sexual abuse that she endured from the age of 12. She was manipulated and groomed by her father, Michael O'Donoghue. And the level of detail is important to her. When we chatted about what she was going to be speaking about, she told me that people often want to know the gossip of a situation like this, but they don't want to hear the really awful graphic aspects because we tend to shy away from those things. But Amy very strongly feels we need to hear it because it gives us an understanding of, in her case, the manipulation, the brainwashing, the opportunistic nature of these crimes. Sometimes these subjects are just so horrific and horrible for us to contemplate that we look away, we skirt over some aspects. So that's maybe not the best approach um, and that's not what we did here. So to repeat again, this is a difficult listen in places and do take that into account. But we think it's a very important one. So just to give you a little background to Amy's case, to her story, Michael O'Donoghue of Cullmanstown, Ballinasloe, County Galway pleaded guilty to 31 counts of sexually assaulting Amy, one count of raping her and one count of producing child pornography in various locations in Galway over a six year period between April 2012 and April 2018. Amy was aged between 12 and 17, as I said, at the time of the abuse. The court heard O'Donoghue plied her with alcohol and drugs, including cannabis and cocaine, before abusing her. He had split up with Amy's mother before she was born and the abuse took place 
when she had access visits to his home. The abuse often took place also when O'Donoghue's wife and other children were present in the house. This all came to light in 2020 when Amy confided in college friends and then her mother. O'Donoghue turned himself later into the guardie, telling them, I'll make it easy for you boys. I did it. I sexually assaulted my daughter and I recorded it on my mobile phone. We saw Amy speaking a few weeks ago outside the criminal court and we were just so impressed by the clarity of her voice, by her courage and by her determination to try to impact change. And we knew we had to have her on. These voices are so important in trying to advocate for more appropriate sentencing in these serious cases. And again, just for our understanding of what goes on and how these things happen and the perpetrators. So that's where I began um, on the steps of the criminal court, asking Amy to tell us how she felt at that time and also in the weeks since her father's sentence was almost doubled on appeal. Well, Roisin, it's a case of the feeling is almost indescribable. It's a case of I felt so many varying emotions. I felt a sense of vindication, a sense of justice being handed down. But it's also a feeling that you slowly have to try and start living your life again. So it's it's a feeling of confusion of where to start. And but the best feeling out of everything was the fact that it was a bit it was justice for me. And the fact that although it was not what it should have been, it was better than what anyone inside in that courtroom was expecting. And it was a fantastic emotion. Like, as you could see on the steps of the Central Criminal Court, I couldn't hide the smile from my face. And being completely honest, even after the weeks of that, the smile hasn't left it. I feel like I'm walking around with a sense of, you know what? I'm Amy Foley. I can finally say that. And I finally know what I'm going to start doing with myself, even though the journey is going to be hard. But it was a start for it was a healing point for me. And it was the start of that. Well, I'm so glad to hear the word healing is coming into your life because, you know, after everything you've been through. But one of the things when when I watched that and we played the clip earlier, when you talked about this um, sentence being doubled and you speaking at as a sort of a learning curve for this country, that really struck me because I could see what your intention was and why you were speaking out. It just felt very passionate. Tell me a little bit about that. Well, for me, it kind of goes back to waving my anonymity in the first state of it, because Once I named myself, I not only made my father's name visible for the entire country to see, I also made my name. And the best way I can describe it, it was actually uh, a good friend of mine who said it to me. He said, it's like being in a car crash and you end up in a wheelchair. You can either sit and struggle and you can contemplate why it happened to you or you can go on and you can win the Paralympics. And for me, it was like I had to win the Paralympics. I wasn't going to stop otherwise. But the only way I could do that was showing this country that there is so much change necessary because at the end of the day, I understand laws are put in place so that they can help people. But what help is it for somebody to feel as though they've been wrong done by by going through such a horrible process? So by speaking out for me, it wasn't just me I was speaking out to. It was everybody else who felt like they were silenced ever before. So 
I felt like the way I did that, I felt like I had the voices of all of them in my heart, all of them in the back of my head, as cliche as it sounds. But I genuinely did. I felt an emotional bond with people I'd never even met before. And not only did I receive so many messages thanking me for coming out and speaking out and doing that, but each message I got, it was another connection with another person. So when I had the choice and the opportunity to speak out on the like on the steps of the Central Criminal Court, I wasn't going to let that opportunity pass myself because not only was I speaking out for myself, I was able to speak for so many others. And there were so many concerns that needed to be voiced. And the fact that I have done that now and people are slowly beginning to look at change is a fantastic thing. So it's it's really it's really made me like, I know it's so strange to say it, but it's made me happy that I've spoken out and it's made me understand that there is so much wrong, but there is so much going to change as well. It's not just going to stay like this forever. There is going to be change in this country. I just want to let our listeners know that when Miss Justice Isabel Kennedy was delivering the court's judgment, she said the sentence, the original sentence imposed by the Central Criminal Court was simply too low and amounted to an error in principle. She quashed the original sentence and replaced it with one of 10 years with the final six months suspended for a period of five years. So he was originally handed that five year sentence back in December 2021. And it was a devastating moment. How, how did you feel, if you don't mind going back on that day when that such a low sentence, he was only going to serve three years of that, really, Amy? It, he really was. So it was a case of I'll never forget the moment in the courts when that sentence was handed down a headline sentence of 12 with two uh, with two suspended and then a further two suspended after that resulting in an amount of five years and I walked into the courts very realistic very realistic knowing that looking at previous cases in the past a lot of sexual offenders and sexual and rapists and so on and so forth do not get the sentence that it is deserved. So I knew I would never get a sentence for him that was deserved. But when I heard the reductions slowly coming into play, I just, it was so funny. It was like my whole room just stopped. I could see everyone, but I, I couldn't hear anymore. And it was like my heart broke it into so many pieces. It wasn't even just my heart. It was my soul rebroken again. Because going into the course, you can't lie, it's an extremely traumatising event to happen because I had many, I had an 88-page official statement I had to do. I had to go to previous locations to make sure they cooperated with my statement. And it's a very traumatising event. I won't, I can't say that it isn't. But... To sit in the courtroom and feel as though all of that was for nothing was soul shattering. I won't ever forget not walking out of the courtroom and looking over. I was on the fourth floor, the fourth story in the Central Criminal Courts. And I just remember walking out and looking over the barrier. And I will. It is a hard thing to hear. But I thought well, it would be so much easier if I just jumped. I said that was my own thought process. I was like, what I did was for absolutely nothing. And... It made me feel it even more when when the sentence was handed down, he looked at me and smirked across the room. It was in his own eyes. He had won and he had put me in his place again. And I was not, I was, I just felt like the little girl again that was slowly wronged all of her life. But this time I actually knew what was happening. 
I went into a shutdown. I went into a shutdown phase. I just, I didn't speak. I didn't talk. And I just remember falling, closing my eyes and falling into the arms of my uncle at the time who was standing there and then slowly being brought over to my mother. And I just wailed and wailed and cried and screamed because I couldn't do anything else. I couldn't articulate anything else. It was the only thing I could do was scream, not just out of frustration, but out of pain and hurt and misery. And it shattered me completely. But it was when the DPP came out and told me they were going to bring it to an appeal. In that moment, I should have felt the joy. I didn't. I was just like, oh, here we go again in my own head. But it made me look back on it after the few days after going, do you know what? The DPP wouldn't appeal this if the sentence wasn't unjust or unduly lenient. So it gave me a bit of hope in the regards of if I can see that it's not fair and if the DPP can see it's not fair, so many other people will see it as well. So I just knew I had to fight it. I just knew I had to continue. Well, let's go back, if you don't mind, to your younger years, because I just want everyone to understand um, the family dynamic at the time. And you grew up with your mum. So your parents split up when you were just a baby. Is that right? So my mother and my father went out years ago. It was a case of my mother actually got pregnant at 17 years of age. But she she tells me now to this day, she, they actually had broken, their relationship had broken off two weeks before my mother actually found out she was pregnant. So it was a case of my mother went through this pregnancy alone, very much so. And she did it for a reason. She did it because she knew that she'd be able to provide a better life and so on and so forth for me by giving the maternal, like my mother is my father as well in my own eyes. My mother is my best friend, my mom, my dad. I've celebrated Father's Day for her every single year. Um, but it, it was a hard time for my mother because she going through this breakup, only finding out she was pregnant. But it wasn't an easy pregnancy for her because unfortunately, my mother was scared of my father. My father has always been a very dominating character. And um, my mother knew this. And she just, there was a fear there for her. So she wanted to protect me in the utmost way. So it actually went to court when my mother was younger because my father wanted and applied for court orders to have access of visitation with me. So there was a good few court cases, so on and so forth. And eventually my father was granted one hour visitation every week. And then it later led up to weekend access. So... I stayed pri like primarily with my mother. That was my home house. That was my that was my safe place. And my father's was my safe place in my own head, but I actually didn't realize it was very unsafe. Um, but my mother and my father, my mother had had her own history with her, um, with him, so on and so forth. She was always very good in the regard of never, never airing out dirty laundry. She kept it to herself. She was being a mother in the situation, whereas unfortunately my father tried to turn me against my mother and turn me against my entire family. He wanted me to move up to Galway with him. I was He was going to look after me. He always told me he'd be the person that never lied to me, whereas in actual fact, that's all he did my entire life. It's a case of wit. It, there was a lot of turbulence in there for a long time. Um, being the middleman just because my father refused to speak to my mother. He was like, I won't speak to her. So anything to do with 
access or anything like that was voiced through me, even though sometimes she would try to contact him, he would have nothing to do with her. And now vice versa, at the end of the day, of course, frustration lies. But it's, it was hard. It was very hard. When I was home with my mother, I was fantastic. I loved every second of it. But when I went to my father's, it was always what happened at O'Donoghue stays at O'Donoghue's. And even my mother noticed a change in me for a minimum of two days once I came back because I was dark, I was angry and I didn't realise in myself I was. But it was just because he was feeding me so many lies that my brain didn't know what to do with them or how to handle them. So frustration and anger was the only thing that slowly brought its way out. But looking back on it now, I can see so many lies, so much stuff, but I still have such a fantastic relationship with my mother now. Like she's my best friend, like I was saying. So I'm living with her as of current. That's that's the main thing that I'm doing. But the dynamic was it was it was rocky to say the least. So you grew up with your mum and where were you living then with your mum? So we were living in Innes Diamond in County Clare, small little quaint village. It's lovely now in fairness. Oh, it's a bit of crack anyway. It's like a little bit of a time warp. You come in one day and then you don't know what day you're leaving. But you know what? You'll <laughs> always have a bit of crack when you come here. But um, this but the, is my But home. your dad was not in Innes Diamond. You, no, he was an Innistiman man, born and raised in Innistiman, but he had previous he had moved to Galway during the court orders when he was asking for right ask, access, pardon me, to visitation. He eventually moved to Galway and then stayed in Galway for the rest of his life and has slowly made his home there. His was his address he ended up being in was in Balnaslow or Colemanstown, Balnaslow in Galway. So that was the last house I ever visited was up there. But I was visiting him from the age of maybe four for overnight visits up to Galway to him. OK, so tell me about that, because we know the physical uh, abuse started when you were 12, but you're sort of alluded to a little, a little bit there, the emotional abuse and the fear um, that he was oh, engendering yeah. in you started earlier than that. So what kind of things do you remember? You said what happens in dad's house stays in dad's house. There was oh, always that sense that so. you couldn't be open about what was going on. I could never be truly open and honest about what was going on. And you're right. So I was subjected to emotional, physical and sexual abuse, unfortunately. And I don't remember a lot of my childhood. I won't lie to you. And that is why I didn't put a lot of childhood statements inside in my official statement, just because I couldn't give two. I couldn't give dates. I struggled with that. I struggled to remember any memories and they'd slowly come back to me in flashbacks. But it was it's a hard thing to remember in a certain degree. But the emotional abuse started at the age of around five. It was when I started learning to tie my shoes. And I remember that image so vividly in my head my father teaching me how to tie my shoes and as a little five-year-old you're going to make mistakes it's it's a learning curve you're supposed to be gently nurtured into that environment taught different skills whereas I was taught that and pardon my language here but I was a retard and I was not good enough and how could I not understand it and I was fucking useless as he would call me, on a regular basis. And that started at around the age of five or so. And that just continued ever since then. Um, when I used to go up to my father's house, I was notoriously, and still am, it's all okay for every 21-year-old out there to still be scared of the dark, but I still sleep with a light on because I was always terrified of it. I didn't know what lurked in the shadows. And um, 
he wouldn't allow me to have a nightlight in my room or anything like that. He used to just close out the door on me um, and leave me in darkness because it was getting to the stage of, oh, she's big enough. She needs to stop. She needs to stop believing in these silly things. And I'm using a lot of language now that he wouldn't have used just to make sure that it's a case of I'm not letting anyone struggle while listening to it. But it's a case of I was, I was a retard. I was useless. I was called every name under the sun. I needed to grow up. He tried to teach me chess when I was younger and he told me, now listen, chess is for smart people, so I won't be surprised if you don't get it. And it was a case of, I didn't even realise, but I was actually playing chess for the entirety of my life. Every every time I went up, there had to be a subtle move, had to be a move to make sure I wouldn't, it wouldn't be checkmate. And it was it was extremely hard. Now, there was times I did I was provided a nightlight and so on and so forth. But just as quickly as I was provided them, they were as quickly taken away. And the emotional abuse, like I said, just started from five and continuously went on through the years. And uh, just to say he'd 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 married again and he had his other children as well. So this was in, in a family house you were in. Yes, it was in a family house. He was in another marriage and had two beautiful kids. I have my heart and soul who I miss desperately. I haven't been able to see them and I unfortunately won't be able to see them for the remainder of um, this. They're minor, like their minor life. I'll have to wait until it's their decision. Unfortunately, I have no right to see them, even though I'm a half sister. But still, um, he that it was in a family house. Thankfully, thankfully, the sexual abuse never happened in front of the kids, thankfully. But it was around every corner. They could have ran in at any time. The physical abuse happened in front of them sometimes in which we'd be shadow boxing, as they say, because my dad used to fight when he was younger. He used to be a boxer and it was something I always gravitated towards and he wanted me to gravitate towards it. But I didn't realise them skills that he was giving me I would need in future to protect myself in that regard. But I didn't realise I needed protecting from him. It was never that. And there was occasions where we'd be shadow boxing and I he'd hit me in front of them. But they'd be so young and so unaware. It was, oh, she needs to put up her guard. She's doing she's doing this. Oh, do it again. But like it was do it again because they don't understand. They had no idea, no recollection. Um And it was just putting on a brave face all of the time. And it was just that family home. It was a family home, but not for me, unfortunately. And and at the age of 12, then the the abuse that you'd been suffering since five years of age, because by this stage you were in his thrall, really, and brainwashed by him to a degree and feeling like you couldn't confide in your mother what was going on because... As we said, what ha- what happened in the O'Donoghue house stayed, stayed there. In there. But yeah. at 12, it became physical. So tell us about what you remember of that. Well, it was actually funny enough. I didn't realise at first I was being physically abused. It would start off in the regard of he'd walk out of the room and, as he'd say, throw a dig into me and I'd get hit in the arm, I'd get hit in the leg and... um he was always like, oh, it's a joke. It's a joke. I'm just giving her a dead arm. I'm giving her a dead leg. And that progressively kept going to any time I would move by him, I'd get a slap thrown into me somehow. And then also at that age, the sexual abuse happened as well. And that was, I didn't realise what was going on at the time. I had no idea. I thought 
it was it started off with a conversation on my way up to his house for overnight visitation and he brought up watching porn and I just thought in my own head oh this is like the talks in school but this is what you're going to have with your parent so he questioned me on porn he questioned me on sexual activity what I had done he told me ways to pleasure a man, how to pleasure a woman, what to watch, what is better to watch, so on and so forth. And then he actually decided to lay his hands on me after plying me with alcohol and drugs. That was that Uh, night? uh, It was the night after I on the drive up. I usually went up on a Friday evening and I'd come home on a Sunday evening. So it was on the Saturday night. Um, Thankfully, well... I say, thankfully, there was no, the wife and kids were not present in the household at the time. But that was why he, it was when he gave me my first drink. It was a glass of wine and I hated it. Now I love it, but it it was, I hated it at the time. So he gave me a bottle of Paddy's Irish whiskey. And he told me, if you wanted to drink the top shelf, you need to learn how to respect it. And so I started drinking that with him, 12 years of age. And then he started giving me marijuana. And he started applying that with me and then it became physical. So I didn't realise what was going on at the time. Of course, I was highly inebriated for a 12 year old who should never have been put in that situation or them circumstances ever. But from that night on, he knew he could get away with it in his own head. He knew that he had formed a trust with me. He had formed a bond. He had treated me like an adult. So, and he told me that I'll never lie to you. You're always go- you're an adult now. You're an adult in my eyes, so on and so forth. And it's so wrong to like look at it and hear it back. But as a 12 year old, all I wanted ever once you're in a separated family, all you ever want is to be loved by the absent parent. And in my case, it was my father. All I ever wanted was a father figure. All I ever wanted was the love of a father figure. And when he started doing these things and spending this time with me, I thought, oh my God, he actually wants to speak to me. He actually loves me. He wants to spend time with me. But um, with that, that just shows a 12-year-old feeling that and feeling that way. How bad was the emotional abuse to the regard of, like, I used to be so degraded that when this happened, when he would ply me with drugs and alcohol, I didn't see anything wrong with it because I was just like, he's actually being nice to me. He's spending time with me. He loves me. But looking back on it now, I was always an object of object of his desire. I was always something he wanted to have, eventually got, but I was never a daughter in his eyes. I was always, I was always an object that he felt that he could do unjustly and heinous things to and get away with it. So that was when I realised later on in life, I was like, I'm not letting you get away with this anymore. You can't, you may be in my head for the rest of my life, but I will not let you, not let you be in a situation where you could ever do this again. So so the sexual aspect began then and he had groomed you to that by talking to you about porn. And I believe he talked to you about daddy-daughter porn was something. Yes, he um he spoke to me about different categories of porn asked me which categories I had previously watched and had I ever watched anything. And then he proceeded to pour us a glass of whiskey, roll a joint and grab a collection of porn DVDs and put them on the telly and said, this is my favourite type of category. It's daddy daughter. And 
something in me didn't feel right with this, but it not only from what he told me, but looking at the girl on the screen, she looked just like me. And it broke like I but I didn't understand it. Like I didn't it looking back on it now, it's a memory that's ingrained in my head. I will never be able to unsee this woman and unsee the resemblance that we held at the time. But in that moment, when you're so inebriated, I had no idea what was going on. I just I didn't know what the story was whatsoever. And it was when we finished a bottle of Paddy's, he opened a bottle of Powers. And then the drinks kept flowing and the drinks and he kept providing me with drink and plying me with drink and putting on different porn categories. And a lot of them daddy daughter and nearly all of the women inside in the videos look the exact same as me. And looking back on it now, I see how wrong and twisted it was. But as a 12 year old, you have no idea because I was I was completely groomed into this. And I presume then when you were sexually assaulted, you were completely out of it. There was no that's why you said you don't have many memories of. Yes. So it was a case of um, that first night he sexually assaulted me. He had given me so much. He told me he was going to go up into the bedroom with me and he said, I'm going to sleep with you in case you go green or pull a whitey. And that was when you mix alcohol and drugs. And he was like, I'm only doing this to protect you. But he warned me beforehand, oh, I've also been drinking and I get a little bit handsy in bed, but it's just because I think it's my wife. Just tell me to stop. So we went into the bed, 10 minutes go by. I had I had previously slept in the same bed as his, my father and his wife. Nothing had ever happened like this before. But he slowly began groping me and it was molesting me. And I told him, I said, Mike, stop. Kept constantly saying his name. But it got rougher and rougher. And to the point where I went, Dad, stop. And he actually progressively got more rough. So I stumbled out of my bedroom into a small little box room just across the hall and I lay there completely out of it, not knowing what had just happened. And I presumed he was asleep since he told me this was like a thing that happened when he was asleep. And it was five minutes later I heard him walk down the stairs. So he was awake. Looking back on it now, he was awake at the time doing that to me, but I had no idea. So I slept and tossed and turned that entire night because it was my first time drinking alcohol. It was like I was completely I was completely all over the place. I really, really was. But um, it was it was a very, very hard thing to look back on and slowly try to comprehend because they do come back yeah. in flashbacks. And Amy, I'm so sorry. And I really do appreciate you talking about it because I I mean, I know. Anyway, I just for listeners as well, it's uh, it's important to talk about it, but also I'm not I'm not insensitive to the fact that that must be difficult for you as well. Uh, I, I just want to look at. So the point when you would have gone back the next day to your mom you were so groomed at this point to not talk about anything, even though your mum would have seen probably in the days afterwards, your mood and everything about you was probably different. You didn't feel able to in any way. No, I was just, it. I had never, when I came to talk to my mum, I told her everything, absolutely everything, except for when I came to my dad. And it was a case of my mother knew my father was capable of being degrading and, a dominant character, but she never believed him to be anything like this. And it was it only it proved it in years later to come when I told her about everything. She looked at me, she said, well, it's not your father who did it. And she couldn't believe something like this would have happened. 
But we eventually learned how to play the game with my father. That's what we used to say, because my mother, I used to call him every night at nine o'clock. It was a strict routine. Every single night I would go into my mother, ask for her phone, call my father for the evening, whether it be a five minute or a 30 minute call. If I was even two minutes past nine, he would not answer the phone to me. He, if he did answer the phone to me, he would degrade me and he would call me a useless child. He would tell me horrendous, horrendous things over the phone about how it wasn't love or anything like that, that kind of job, and that I was a horrible child. And eventually my mother saw how upset I was getting, so it was, we played the game. We do what we need to do to survive with him. And... I don't want that to come across now to any listeners being like, oh, we, she she did what she did to survive. That was not what my mother was advocating, because like I said, my mother had no idea about the effects that were going on in my childhood. But I could never tell her anything. She just presumed, oh, he's at it again, talking poorly to her. And she'd call him and be like, Michael, you can't speak to her like that. And he'd tell her down the phone, don't tell me how to parent my fucking child. She's my child when she's at my house. I parent her my way and you have no say in that. I presume because of the alcohol and the drugs and all of that, that there's lots of incidences that are just a blur that you that you probably don't have any memory of. So you can never really know all of the things. But there was one incident at a family wedding. Can you tell me about that? You were 13 at this point. Yeah. Um, Tell me about the circumstances of that wedding. So it was my father's brother's wedding. um, One of my uncles at the time and I was 13 years of age. It was up in a place called Kong. Uh, up in Mayo, I'm nearly positive. I, if I'm right now, if my geography suits me well. It is Mayo. Yeah. Uh, oh, telling you, I'd go on great well with the leaving cert <laughs> nowadays. Um, but it's a case of, we were up in Kong at this family wedding. We were staying overnight. We were staying for maybe two days. And we had our own little chalets, everyone in the family. The wedding proceeded to go on during the day. I was given drink by my father on the sly I was like it wasn't really in front of too many people when it came to dinner um it was have water but I'll give you a glass of wine later or something like that and I was like yeah okay no problem because that was the dynamic between the two of us he'd give me drink but it was up to him and it was always going to be on the sly until it went until it wasn't but understandably at a wedding people get intoxicated my father got So intoxicated that day that he ended up knocking over the DJ booths, speakers and so on and so forth by falling into him. And his father, my grandfather, told me to escort my father back to the chalet. Bear in mind his his wife, who was pregnant at the time, and my middle child brother at the time, the youngest at the time, were already inside in the chalet because it was time for them to go to bed. So I was in charge of bringing my father Back to the chalets, a 13 year old girl trying to carry. Oh, my God, this is nearly 10 years ago. So it's nearly a 33 year old man back to the room. Um, I asked him, could I come back? Could I stay? He told me I wasn't able to. So it was just come on, bring him. So he tried to get more drink before leaving. Um, he wasn't allowed to be served. So I continued and I had to push and drag him around the corridor When we took the corridor in the hotel, he immediately pinned me to the wall, grabbed me and began sexually assaulting me. He began sloppily kissing my neck, ruching my dress, trying to grab 
my breasts, through my dress, under my dress, lifting up everything. And I begged and pleaded with him to stop. I was like, get off me, get off me, you're drunk. And he told me um, that I had to enjoy it. And I said, this isn't right. I said, please get off me. Something's not, you're scaring me. And he said, scaring you when I, I'm going to bend you over and rape you and you're going to have to like it. He proceeded to touch my breast and everything underneath my clothes and I managed to get him off me for a moment, but I still had to try and bring him to this chalet. And we had made it maybe another 10 to 15 feet before he pinned me to the wall again and progressively started to sexually assault me and sexually demean and ridicule me in every way. And he told me again he was going to bend me over and rape me and I was going to have to enjoy it and there was nothing I could do about it. And it was in that corner, some of my family members walked around the corner and um, he instantly pulled away. Uh, just tell me about one more incident before we, we go on about what kind of triggered you coming out and, and, and talking about it. Of was it when you were 15, I think? Yeah, that was, this is, I I hate to say it, but this is the big one. Um, well, when I was fairness, 15. I just need to say that the other ones, yeah. everything you've spoken about is yeah. awfully and big and terrible. And, you know, I know that people listening are feeling for you so much. And again, I'm just so grateful to you. Oh, thank you, honey. And like, that's the thing. It is everything that I have been through has been big, but this is always going to be the one that sticks out most because when I was 15, he raped me. So it was December 23rd of 2016. I was at my father's house. I, I, It used to be, I'll go to my mother's house one year for Christmas. I'll go to my father's house the next. But once my brothers were born, it was very much a case of I wanted to spend as much time as humanly possible with them. Um, with that, um, I was up at their house getting ready and we were going to go to his wife's family for Christmas. So we had just moved into a new house up there, the Balneslow address. And my father was a painter decorator. So he was doing the whole interior of the house. With him doing that, he asked me to stay behind with him so we didn't have to travel to Carlo on his own and I'd give him a hand because I'd previously worked with him for a um, on and off um, painting and decorating. He said, you can give me a hand painting the house. It was more like he was telling me, if anything, but he just told me, he asked me just to say that he did. Um, so herself and the kids ended up going away and I was alone in the house with him. He had purchased a bottle of Bombay Sapphire Gin and... A lot of marijuana, but he always had marijuana in the house regardless. I, I had been accustomed to smoking with him now at this stage and drinking also. So on the Christmas Eve um, or on the day before Christmas Eve, uh, we started working our way through the kitchen, so on and so forth, getting it done, getting it painted. Um, music was playing, drinks were flowing. He was constantly making the drinks and each time he poured a drink it was like triples and doubles and everything like that. We were slowly working our way through the kitchen, getting it done. And when he was pouring the drinks, he slowly asked me to start pouring the drinks and he showed me how much to pour. So I said, OK, that's no problem. Drinking became heavier and heavier and our boiler broke that night. Um, so he was on the phone to someone trying to fix the boiler I was drinking away, but I had become so intoxicated I'd actually passed out on the kitchen table. Um, 
he brought me down to my bedroom, to which he told me I supposedly did some sexual acts towards him in the regards of touching his neck, kissing his neck, trying to take him to bed with me. Um, I don't believe I did this. I was so inebriated. I don't believe I really, you did that either, I don't Annie. believe I did this, but um, this is what he told me the next day. But I ended up being so drunk that I ended up vomiting on myself and on my bed. So there, I vomited on myself and on my bed and I managed to take myself to my brother's room. And I was lying on the bed, face down on the bed, uh, naked because I had stripped myself on the way down because I was covered. There was puke everywhere, clothes, hair, the whole, the whole works. And he told me he followed a trail down to the room of clothes after he smelled vomit after coming to check on me. And he saw me lying there on the bed and the exact words he looked at, told me were, and I just couldn't help myself. And it's a case of I, he orally sexually assaulted me first. I remember the sensation. I remember the feeling. I'll never be able to get it out of my head. But I was so inebriated. I couldn't actually speak. I couldn't move. I just remember lying there, not even being aware of what, where I was, what room I was in, anything. I couldn't even open my eyes. But I just remember feeling this sensation going Jesus I don't know this I I haven't felt this this is very weird it was like one of the dogs had gotten at me and I was just like right okay and then I ended up passing out again and then I woke up I say I woke up I slowly became aware in the regards of like I was when he was orally sexually assaulting me um I became aware to an extreme amount of pain and then I f like I felt the trusting and I didn't know what it was, but I, he had actually penetrated me and I could feel my legs slapping off the side of the bed. I couldn't move. I couldn't speak. I couldn't do anything. I tried to make a noise to be like, I'm awake, but I couldn't do it. And I couldn't, I physically couldn't do anything except lie there. And it felt like hours. And, um, I remember managing to make a noise and he stopped and then I made another noise and I contorted the top of my body somehow, but I still couldn't, couldn't really see, couldn't really speak, couldn't do anything of that regard. And um, he slowly walked out of the room after that. And it was when I woke up hours later, I had actually thought I'd wet the bed. I didn't know where I was. I didn't know what was going on. I didn't know why I didn't have any clothes. My hair was wet. I thought I had a shower. I was like, what's going on? So I said, I'll take myself to the bathroom. I was still extremely intoxicated when I woke up, took myself to the bathroom. I thought, like I said, I had previously wet the bed. And when I was in the bathroom, um, it was only when I turned on the light that I looked down at my hands and my hands, both of them were stained and covered in this crimson red blood. I'll never be able to forget. Like I, I see it every time I look at my hands, every time I wash my hands, I will never be able to forget the image I saw in my head. And I knew I wasn't due my period. I knew I wasn't, I, I thought it could have been my period. I was like, maybe I was like, but I'm, ex I'm extremely regular. I was like, I don't know what this could be. 
Um, I just remember the toilet was close to the sink and turning on the sink and wetting ample amounts of tissue and trying to wipe the blood stains off my legs, trying to wash my hands while trying to keep myself upright on the toilet. But I knew it couldn't have been my period because the pain I felt was unimaginable. It was shooting pain, horrendous burning sensation. And I was like, I've never had anything like this before. And um, I remember going in back into the bed I woke up in because that is where you honestly think of going. And I just lay there confused, being like, why am I here? What happened? I had no recollection of the night whatsoever. The last thing I remember was listening to Boulevards of Broken Dreams by Green Day was the last song I remember listening to before passing out. And um, I remembered nothing else. So I eventually went back to sleep after hours of being awake and hours of confusion. And I woke up in the morning to my bed completely stripped and already being washed and dried. Um, The hallway had been mopped, everything like that. And then when I had gotten up, he said, go for a shower. Um, Went for a shower. Uh, That was when I realised I had obviously gotten sick on myself and everything because it was in my hair. After the shower, I came out, my brother's bed was stripped and washed and started to dry. And then when I came up to the kitchen, he completely humiliated me by telling me, oh, you were a right tramp last night. Um, This is what you did. You were all over me. Um, You were this and that. And then he told me about how when he saw me on my brother's bed, I he said, you were raising your arse like a whore who was begging for it. And he continuously tried to degrade me and humiliate me. And on the way to uh, the in-law's house, he turned around and he kept talking about it, had his hand on my leg and I tried to sit away from him. And I said, I don't know what happened last night. I said, but that can never happen again. And he looked at me in my eyes and he said, "Okay." And the groping and the molestation and everything ceased for about a month before it started to continue again. Amy, um, it's just very, very distressing. Obviously, you went through it. We're just listening to it. But I just want to want to just say that. And um, again, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry for everything that happened to you. But it was only when you were 18. that you suddenly realised it, it's like as if it, it all came crashing down. Tell us about that moment and what instigated it. So the moment actually was, it was in, I had started college for the first time. I was accepted into Maynooth University. So I was doing an arts degree up there at the time. And I had gone out on a night out with my friends, with the girls, so on and so forth. And I was out in the smoking area. I'm a smoker and I was about to have a cigarette and I was pinned to the wall by two men and um, who tried to sexually assault me. And I remember I remember the feeling and the sensation of being pressured to a wall, but I didn't have any recollection as to why or how. And it really made me question it and so on and so forth. But I couldn't wrap my head around it whatsoever. And this is in around September time. I think it was Freshers Week up in Maynooth. And then I had gotten a boyfriend in college and my father was speaking to me about coming down over the weekend. He said, you're coming down this weekend. I need you to babysit. He said, you can bring anyone you want from college down. At least you'll have a bit of company. And 
bear in mind throughout all of my life from the ages of 12 to 18, from the ages of 12 until I had like ceased contact with him and started this investigation, it was inexplicably normal for me to have sexual conversations with my father about my sex life, about porn, about men, about everything. It was a case of every time I had a conversation with him, he made it sexual in some way, shape or form. So I asked him, I said, listen, I said, can I bring down a fella I'm seeing at the time? He's actually my boyfriend. And he said, a boyfriend? And I said, yeah. I said, listen, there's no drama at all whatsoever. I'm not expecting you to say yes. I just said I'd chance my arm. And he said, I'll double check with the, I'll double check with the missus um, because I don't think she'll feel too comfortable about you getting jockeyed in my house, he said. But I have no problem with it. And I was like, right, OK. Jesus so, Christ, sorry. Oh, no, completely agree. Um, so then he turned around and he texted me and he said, um, has he rode you yet? Actually, have you rode him? And I said, I knew where this was going. I had I had previously lost my virginity or so I thought I had lost my virginity at 16. It was actually my father who had taken that, but I was unaware. Um, but I always maintained the fact, no matter how sexual the conversations got, I always maintained the fact of I had kept my virginity. Um, so he had never knew I had previously had sex. So he asked me, have I rode him yet? Were his words. And I said, maybe, because I didn't want to disclose too much. I kept this conversation very brief because at the point I was like, I'm in this relationship with this man. I don't want to be discussing our sex life too much with my father. At the end of the day, I'm 18 living on my own now. I don't need to discuss my sex life with him. I was so used to talking about sex in general. Sex in general was such a completely normal thing for me to speak about with him. But um, my own sex life in that time, I was like, I don't really want to speak about this. So I just let on. I said, maybe. And he said, um, ha, you dirty dog. Um, and I said, oh, yeah, of course. And he spoke about it and he said he spoke about it in a way and he inclined that um, this wasn't my first time having sex, he told me. And I said, what do you mean by that? And he told me. Don't worry, you don't remember. And it was in that moment when I saw that message that I was looking at it and a seriously intense flashback came back to me. And I remembered the car journey going to Christmas on Christmas Eve and I said, whatever happened last night cannot happen again. And he looked me dead in my eyes and said, OK. And I had a very intense image about that, but then I was instantly transported to the time I was in the bathroom and the pain I felt for the days after and the bleeding. And it slowly made sense to me because I was like, oh my God. I was like, what happened to me wasn't a dream. It wasn't a nightmare. I was like, it wasn't a figment of my imagination. It actually happened. And then that was the slow slow part of the process when the flashback slowly began to come back. Because like I said, I thought this was normal all my life. This was what I was led to believe was normal. I was groomed into believing this from such a young age. And it was a case of when the flashbacks started coming back, there was events I couldn't remember and then were just having it out in my face. It was it was an extremely, extremely horrendous and terif- uh, like terrible time for me. But 
I then disclosed it to my roommates in one of my roommates in the October of 2019 towards the end of it, the start of November. And I said it because that was in or around the time he messaged me. And I said it to her, I said, I don't know if this is what happened, but I believe my father has raped me. And then it was all of the other times of sexual abuse. Once I started talking about it, once I started remembering more, I realised that it was an ongoing pattern and something I had been subjected to nearly all of my life. And that was when I was like, oh, my God, my whole life has been a lie. And you told your mother. I told my mother on, I think, was it December 13th or December 17th? And I said I started crying and I just started apologising profusely. I just said, I'm so, so sorry. I'm so, so sorry I did this. I'm so, so sorry um, I didn't tell you. I blamed myself for so long and I even tried to defend my father to my mother. I was like, he's a good dad. I was like, he's a good dad. He tries to love me. He just doesn't know how. He's good to the boys. He's a fantastic father to the boys. Um... He is, he just, like, it's just different. Like, do you get me that kind of job? And she was like, Amy, no. Like, I was so beyond the point of manipulation and grooming that I actually tried to justify what my father had done to me, saying that it was a form of love. And it, I was so wrong in what I was saying. Like, I had no idea how wrong it was until... I started speaking to, I tried to start speaking to counsellors and I tried to start speaking to my mother about it. And I still went up to my father that year for Christmas in the year of 2019 because my mother looked at me and she said, well, you're not going to Christmas at his house. And I said, I have to. And she was like, no, you fucking don't. She was like, you are not going anywhere near that man's house. I said, if I don't go to that house, he will know something is up. I said, he will know And then I looked at her, I said, we have to play the game. And she went, Amy, don't say that. And I was like, unfortunately, I said, we do. I was like, at the end of the day, I don't show myself. I I don't do anything. I don't, I back out on my word. He'll lose his mind. I was like, and he'll know something was up. Um, So I went to my father that year for the, the Christmas of December 2019. And that was the last time he sexually assaulted me. And he actually sexually assaulted me with the kids in the room, but they were on, they were on the phone speaking to the in-laws, talking to Chris about Christmas and so on and so forth. And he made me sit on his lap and he proceeded to sexually assault me uh, behind everyone. But that was, it was the January of 2020 was my last time I had seen him. And because I had disclosed to a member of the Odunahu family who then proceeded to disclose it to other members and then confront my father on it. And when he confronted my father on it, he denied everything, uh, said I would never do anything like that to my own child. Eventually, after I disclosed, I had made arrangements to speak to Angarda Siakana, um, my uncle on my own side, on the Foley side of the family, had arranged a interview but due to Garda affiliation being in both sides of my family I was waiting for a unit to be handed to me or to be given to me to a certain degree that had no knowledge of any of the members of my family so I was given the Dublin the Dublin sexual crimes unit and I was waiting 
on an interview with them and to make give my official statement. And I then got a message from him one night. He tried to call me three times one night at 11 o'clock. I was lying in bed. I remember the fear course through my body. And I just started screaming for my mother. She was like, what's wrong? What's wrong? I said, he's on the phone. He's trying to call me. And then I got inundated with messages. Him saying, you're finally safe now. You're finally safe now. I told the truth. Um, I'm going to hand myself in. And he told me he was going to hand himself into the guards the next morning. And this is why I try to stress it to so many people because they look at me and they try to justify it. Well, at least he handed himself in. At least you avoid a trial. No, because if he was actually serious about it, he wouldn't have denied it first. Then he wouldn't have told me he was going to hand himself in the next day. And he waited another two weeks to hand himself in. The only reason he handed himself in was because he heard that a unit was going to be given to me to take a further. He knew I was going to do that. Amy, I presume then his wife left him after he she found out what he uh, her husband had done to you, the father of her two children. She is actually still in support of him at the moment. By coming out, Amy, not only are you showing others that they're not alone, you also stood up to the legal system. You said this sentence isn't good enough. It's a huge undertaking for such a young woman to take, which is why we admire you um, so much. I just want to know about life for you now and and how you are going to be moving forward from this and what your kind of life's mission is. You're a really talented musician. I've seen you on uh, on your Instagram. I hope people oh, go and see. Thank you very much. Amy, Amy Foley Music. What a stunning voice. You've also written a beautiful song called Struggling, which I think anyone who's been assaulted or abused or, you know, had gone through what you've gone through will totally understand. So, yeah, what what is what is life for you now, Amy? Well, life for me now, it's always life is always going to be a little bit confusing and I still am taking my time to figure it out. At the moment, I'm currently unemployed. I just came back from the States for three months. I was over to just kind of clear my head to go on a little adventure of my own. And it is it's going to be a lot of learning and a lot of healing. I hope in which the regards of I still I haven't found any counsellors. I would love to speak to somebody, but it's just when the time is right for myself. So I would love to get myself into therapy because it is such an important part of the healing process to find someone you can speak to and know that you aren't alone in that regard. But I'd love to do something along the lines of advocacy and so on and so forth. Hence why I did speak up, because at the end of the day, there's solidarity in numbers and there is a ridiculous amount of us in Ireland who have been wronged and have feel like they have no voice. And for me, why I wrote my song Struggling, um, it's a case of music was my therapy and it was the way I was able to get it out and get out the emotions that I felt and I couldn't comprehend. And I wanted that to be an anthem for everybody else because at the end of the day, to know that you're not alone and to know that somebody else feels the emotions you do feel is one in itself because I never thought anyone would be able to understand how I felt. So with speaking up for the system, I did that because I'm able to talk about what happened to me because it was my normal for so long. I'm able to hold myself. I'm able to speak about the traumatic and heinous events that went on in my life. And I'm not going to not use my voice that I've always been prided in and prided on for being that musician, being the loud person, be, having the powerful voice, I knew I could make a change or at least try to instigate change slowly but surely. 
Um, so hence why I did that, because at the end of the day, I want people all over the world, whether it happened to you as a child, whether it's happened to you now, whether it happens to you in the future, there will be a place that you will be able to go to in in future that you can feel safe and that you can feel like you're heard. Because at the end of the day, many people listen, but a lot of people don't hear. And that's what people need to understand. So that's why I've done what I've done and I've spoken out on what I have and what I plan to do in the future. Um, I've actually, thankfully and shockingly, in my own head, been invited to the Irish Tatler Women of the Year's Award 2022. And it's been an amazing opportunity that has been given to me, especially um, with everything going on and especially with the amazing thing that is coming from such a horrible thing. But that proves that there is people slowly beginning to hear and that is my main goal for eventually not just 10 and 20 people to listen and hear, but 10 and 20,000, because that's the only way change will happen and instigate. So I'd love to do something in advocacy. I'd love to do something with my music, but I'll have to figure it out slowly but surely. But the main priority now is to heal. Yeah, I mean, you're an incredible woman. Uh, you're so impressive. It's so important that people who've been through this have Voices like yours who they can listen to, you know, and I know, you know, that's important. So, but I mean, you probably never know how, how important and how much maybe even people listening today have been moved and touched and inspired by what you're saying to, to make changes in their own lives or to help out some other uh, young woman or young man who's who's going through something that they they might not have done anything about. Um, you gave a victim impact statement and I know that you don't like to be consider yourself a victim. I know you prefer the word survivor, which probably isn't still isn't adequate either. But was it important for you to do that, to 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 sort of to, to address him directly and tell him what he'd done to you? Oh, very much so, because I knew in the first moment in my life that he would not be able to cut me down and not be able to speak back to me. Like the victim impact statement in the legal system and in the courts is such an important thing and it needs to be taken at such a high standard because at the end of the day, this is the one time when a case isn't going to trial. It's just, it's uh, it's not a not guilty case. It's a guilty case. So you don't hear from the victim or you don't hear from the survivor. You don't hear from the perp like the person who has been wronged in the occasion. And it's such an important thing to just put your heart and soul into it because no one can stop you. No one can turn around and not he listen to you because at, they have to sit there and listen to you. They have to sit and listen to the pain, listen to the turmoil. And for me, it was so important because it was finally the time I could look at my father and be like, checkmate. You tried to do this for me so, to so long. You tried to, you tried to, you took my pawns, you took my bishop, you took my castles. But in this game of chess, you did not beat me. Do you still play chess, Amy? Not very well, but I'd like to hope that I could get into the future. <laughs> and listen, I just want to ask you one more thing. If there are legal people listening to this, people in positions where they can actually change things, judges, barristers, people who are involved in the system, what is it you want to change in regard to the sentencing of these crimes? Because your life has been forever changed. You are a different person because of what happened. You have to pick up the pieces and go forward with your life where he'll be out in 10 years, nine years, eight years, yeah. whatever he gets out. What would you like them to know about what you think needs to change? 
There, see, this is the thing. I could end up doing another podcast with you and just... I don't <laughs> Maybe know. we will do that, but let's keep it brief for but, the moment. Agreed. To keep it brief, there's so many things that need to be changed, but it needs to start off with, there needs to be minimum sentences for sexual crimes and sexual assault, sexual abuse rapes because we work our way we start at a certain number we start from the top and work our way down but it all depends on the bracket the DPP deem it to be sentenced in but there should be a minimum sentence no matter if a person pleads guilty or not guilty I was prepared for my father to plead not guilty I was prepared for anything I was prepared to be called every name under the sun understand and I was okay with that because at the end of the day I deserve justice And to get a sentence, a starting sentence from 12 to 7 to 5, that's not justice. That's an embarrassment. Once you lay your hands on someone and they are unwillingly wanting that, you're instantly branding and scaring them for life. You're shattering their soul. Like rape charges and so on and so forth are just as heinous or if not as heinous as so many other charges in the system. But so many other people like drug dealers, for example, they get they, people go out and look for drugs. No one goes out and looks to be raped, and no one goes out to be looks to be sexually assaulted. But drug dealers get so much more time in prison than actual rapists and sexual assaults do. If we can't even speak about it, how can we let the perpetrators off with just a slap on the wrist? I just it's something that I don't understand. But to keep it brief, minimum sentences need to be put in charge of rape and sexual assault crimes. Not only that, I understand there's being a change in the reform of character references in that people will have to go into the box and so on and so forth, which is a fantastic thing for this country to do because my father's case and mine, there was multiple character references given, but when my detective called them back to let them know what he was being charged with, they didn't know. So there was multiple character references then thrown out because they had no idea. Not only that, we need to look in a standpoint that victim impact statements are given a much higher regard and a much higher appreciation in the judge's eyes and in the authority's eyes. Because at the end of the day, it is the one time you must listen to us and have to listen to us. You hear the psychological warfare and turmoil we have been put through. And it shouldn't just be, oh, that was lovely, thanks a mil, and then no impact given on it. This is something that's been introduced to the systems for a reason and a higher regard needs to be given to them. There is so much more, but like I said, we definitely do another podcast. I think we'll do another podcast, Amy, and maybe we'll do another podcast where you might come on and sing, but I'm hoping to be able to um, do a little clip of your song um, at the end of this podcast too. Oh, thank you so much. I I just want to say again, and I'm sorry for repeating myself, we're all very, very grateful. I know listeners are, um, we can't say how important it is that people like you um, talk about this and are so courageous and so articulate and strong. And um, I mean, I, I'm I'm devastated listening to you, but I'm also so aware of the importance of what you're doing. And I just I'm very, very grateful from the bottom of my heart, really. Thank you so, so much. And to hear that and to be invited on this platform to speak about what has happened in my life and speak about the change I wish to instigate. It has been an amazing opportunity and I can do nothing more, but thank you for that opportunity and thank you for treating me with such graciousness and with 
being so cautious of the regards of what to ask and what to say, like you have been an absolute pleasure to speak to and it has been an amazing opportunity for me. And I'd definitely love to do another podcast. I'll sing okay, for you whatever you'd like. Amy, Amy, you are officially a friend of the women's podcast now. You're on oh, our list of people we're going to call for a lot of different reasons because you've got so many aspects to your character, your musicality, your intelligence, your wit. You know, you are definitely oh. an asset to any episode we'd be doing. So I just want to say, Amy Foley, thank you again so much. Thank you so much, Roisin. Thank you so much. That was Amy Foley there, an amazing person. I know you'll agree. And if you've been affected by any of the issues raised here, please contact the Rape Crisis Centre helpline 1800 And the Samaritans free phone helpline is 116123. And of course, there's a lot more resources and numbers online if you go and look for them. If you want to get in touch with us about this interview or about anything else, we're on the women's podcast at irishtimes.com and we're on social at IT Women's Podcast. The podcast is produced by me, Roisin Ingle, and by Suzanne Brennan with JJ Vernon on sound. Mind yourselves and I'll talk to you next time. Too hard to breathe, so much so I cannot sleep. Searching but finding no Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.